Well, turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, uh, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. We are in week four of what looks like it's going to be uh, about a six-week study uh, that has been jumping around the gospel accounts. We've been uh, just simply calling it Jesus stories. We've looked at two miracles. We've looked at a controversial pardon that Jesus gave in John chapter 8. And now we turn uh, to a different kind of story, to a story that Jesus himself told, stories that are called parables. Now we could say a lot about parables. We did a brief study in parables, at least some of us on Sunday evenings uh, last school year. Uh, during our Peripateo program, we did a study of parables. We could talk a lot about parables, but in short, we might say that parables are vivid stories of veiled truth. Vivid stories of veiled truth. And Jesus told a lot of such stories, vivid ones that would grab us and grip us with the drama, and yet had a deep truth and deep meaning behind them. And so for this week and next, we're going to look at just two parables of Jesus as we continue in this series. This morning we find ourselves in Matthew 25, just to give you a little context since we've been jumping around the Gospels. Here at the end of Matthew, Jesus is talking about the end of the world, the end of our world as we know it. The beginning of chapter 24, Jesus' disciples asked him some questions. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus has been answering those questions. He spent most of chapter 24 answering those questions. That's another day, another sermon. But chapter 25 has been consumed with what do we do until then? What do we do until you come back, Lord Jesus? And so he tells a couple stories to illustrate. We've looked at the first one. In another context, I think about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, we looked at the first story he tells in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. And there, the point of the story was vigilance. We wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus with vigilance. Well, if the first story Jesus told in Matthew 25 was one of vigilance, this next story that Jesus tells is one of diligence. If we are waiting for the return of our bridegroom, what does that look like? What kind of faith waits? And so that's where we turn our hearts and our attention to this morning. Listen as I read Matthew 25, 14 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, the passage is printed for you in the insert of your bulletin. There are also Bibles available for you on the back table. Listen as I read Matthew 25, starting at verse 14, reading down through verse 30. Jesus said, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. 
so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And in my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Tapestron International. I'm not sure you've heard of Tapestron International. They are a manufacturer of computerized, carpet-looming tapestry machines. In fact, I'm fairly certain you've never heard of Tapestron International, but back in 1994, they were the talk of my apartment. You see, my college roommate was banking big. He was an accountant major, and he was banking big on the arrival of the next generation of Tapestron International's machines that would literally change the carpet industry. He had invested quite a bit of money in Tapestron International in this fledgling company, and he was excited to see his predictions pay off. Well, you probably can guess the end of the story. It didn't work out. The Tapestron 3000, or whatever the next generation machine was called, wasn't all that it hoped that he had hoped that it would be. And thousands of dollars slipped away as their stock plummeted. Maybe you have a similar story to my college roommate. Investing in our modern world, investing in the stock market can be tricky, which is why so many of us 
simply avoid it all together. Well, this, this morning, brothers and sisters, is a story of investing. It's a story of investing. It's not a guidance. It's not a how-to for choosing stocks in our modern world, but it's a story that pushes us to invest and to invest wisely, to invest in something greater, to invest in something that is an absolute sure thing. It's a familiar story to many of you, and I want to Think about it for a few moments, and I know much more could be said that we're going to say this morning, but I want to think about it using two truths from this parable that I think we need to remember as God's people, as followers of Christ. And the first one is this. Your life is a stewardship, not an ownership. Your life is a stewardship, not an ownership. How easily we forget this simple fact. And yet how significant this one truth is for our whole perspective on life and for all of our priorities in life. For me, it's a little bit, very small, but it's a very, it's a little bit akin to renting a car when I'm going on a road trip with my family. A couple months ago when we went to Augusta, Georgia to visit Anna's family, I rented a van, as I have to do with my five children. And when I went to pick up the van, they gave me a 2012 Chrysler Town & Country. 12,000 miles, leather interior, woodwork all throughout. And I'm thinking... You want me to take this car on a road trip with my five kids and french fries and sodas and everything else that comes with a road trip? And it always puts me in this quandary. What am I going to do? Do I go and get the extra insurance that covers everything, french fry stains and soda stains and all those things? You see, I become greatly concerned because... It's not mine. I'm just a steward. I'm not an owner. The story that Jesus tells centers around talents. We in our modern world, we are familiar with that word. Our modern usage of that word finds its origin here in this word that is used. But back in Jesus' day, talents didn't mean what our modern conception of talents is. Talents was a Currency of money. It was a unit of money. It was about, as many of your Bible's footnotes say, it was about 20 years wages. And this wealthy man that Jesus tells the story of leaves this significant portion of his wealth to his servants. Let's just say it's a million dollars. A million dollars is a talent. And so five talents, five million to the first, two talents, two million to the second, and one talent, one million to the third. 
Two of the servants, with all eagerness and discipline and diligence, they used what they had been given to produce a 100% return on what the master entrusted to them. The third did something that was a common practice in his day that isn't all that ordinary. He buried it for safekeeping by putting it into the ground. Upon the return of the master, the master judges what his servants have done. And for the wise investors, though they're given differing amounts, they're all given the same condemnation. Well done, good and faithful servants. And they're rewarded. The whole digger, we might call him, explains his reasons and he's harshly rebuked. You wicked and slothful servant. And he's banished. And Jesus tells this story and we ask, what does it mean? Well, it means, first of all, this simple but often neglected truth. That we are stewards, we are not owners. You see, you and I this morning, we easily fit into this story. The master is God. We are the servants and the talents, the investment that the master has entrusted into your care is you. It's everything you have. It's everything that you are. Your life, your breath, your family, your money, your time, your intellect, your gifts, your opportunities, your successes, your failures, your righteousness. None of it is yours. It's all been given to you by another for another. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it All those who dwell therein. Paul told the people of Athens in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Even if you're here this morning and you don't acknowledge that you are a follower of Christ, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian You're still the Lord's. He's given you everything that you have, everything that you are. And if you are the Lord's this morning, if you are Christ Jesus's, then you, brothers and sisters, have been doubly bought. You are doubly owned because Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You have been bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, this foundational, this fundamental truth about the reality of our lives changes everything. You are given resources, not for you, but for the glory of your Master. You are not made for you, but for the glory of your Master. Let that sink in. Your entire existence is a stewardship, not an ownership. We love to compartmentalize our lives. God owns Sunday. 
or at least Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday are mine. God owns 10%, or 8.5% maybe, but I own the other 90%. And Jesus says, no. Jesus calls you to something greater. He calls you to something more. So that's the first truth that I think this simple story reminds us of this morning. Stewards, not owners. But there's a second thing that flows from that, and it's this. The returning king, our returning king, expects a return. Our returning king expects a return. Now, maybe this rubs us a little bit the wrong way right at first. And you say, Pastor Nate, what about God's grace? I thought it was our faith in Jesus that makes us right with God, not the things that we do. And I say, Amen. Absolutely. But Jesus reminds us here that our faith, that true grace is not dead. A genuine experience of God's grace always bears fruits. And it's not just the results that this parable points us to look at, but it's also what's behind the results. It's, it's at the heart that is behind the results. In fact, to get to the heart, in addition to that first understanding of you are not an owner, you are a steward, I want us to think about three right understandings that we need to have in order to produce a return. Kids, this is kind of three little mini points underneath that second point that the returning king expects a return. And the first thing is this. We need a right view of God. We need to have a right view of God. You see, when you look at this story, what is essentially the difference between the two sets of servants? It's a wise and it's a foolish Distinction. There is this commonality. All three servants work for the master. The master entrusts all three with something, though to differing levels. But there is a difference that though it reveals itself in the results, it actually originates in the heart. I mean, this lazy servant, as he's called, this one servant who buried his portion in the ground, Is he just lazy? Is that all that there is to it? He had other things to do? Well, that's part of it, but the master calls him something else. The master says he is wicked. You see, the difference between the servants was how they thought about their master. The first to show their love for the master in their eagerness to immediately go to work with what he has given them. In their eagerness to tell them what they have accomplished on his behalf. But do you see the perception of the last servant? You're a hard man, master. You take even if you didn't plant it, he says. See, this is a man who doesn't Love the master. At the very least, he doesn't trust 
the master. He thinks about the master with unwarranted fear. And maybe it was because he felt like he was getting slighted by only being entrusted with one talent. Whatever the reason, he does nothing with the master's money, intentionally so. And the master responds with astonished anger and says, essentially, if you really feared that I was this kind of master, you should have really worked to produce something for me, but your actions reveal that you want nothing to do with me, and therefore I want nothing to do with you. Depart from me. See, in order to produce a return for the returning king, we need to first think rightly about the master. For the one servant, there was this mixture of fear, of distrust, of resentment that determined how he would handle what the master had given to him. And for the others, there was this joy. This joy that resulted in fruit. This acknowledgement that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And so the question for you and I this morning as we hear Jesus' words spoken to us are, what do you believe? What do you really believe about God? What is your perception of Him and the service He desires and demands of you and your life? If the Lord is a cruel taskmaster to you, if He is one that you perceive has a list of rules that you need to follow, a standard that you need to meet in order for Him to love you, if that is your perception of the Lord, then of course, you're not going to joyfully put to work what He has given to you, what He has entrusted to you. But if your picture, if your perception, if your understanding of the Master is the one that is revealed in the fullness of Scripture, a God who loves you, a Father who loves you, despite the mess that you are, then it is a joy to be poured out for that kind of Father. I just read the other night in our devotions a new book that my daughter had gotten for her birthday, Thoughts That Make Your Heart Sing. It's a great little devotional by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I commend it to you who have little ones. But we read the passage we read the devotional where she spoke about the sparrow. And the title of the story was Small and Screechy. And she drew attention to the fact, which was vivid for my kids, what kind of bird would you want to be? And there's this beautiful illustration of a parrot and of a macaw and of penguins. My kids kept asking, why is the penguin sitting on the telephone wire? Well, just so she could line them up, I think. But these beautiful birds, and then this little small, screechy bird. And the point of the devotion was, if God loves the small, screechy sparrow, how much more does He love you? How much more is He interested in giving you good 
gifts. You see, we're not McCalls. We're not beautiful parrots. We're small, screechy sometimes. But that's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of master who leaves us with his treasure. That's who we need to think about. We need to think rightly about the master. Well, secondly, under this point of producing a return for the returning king, we need to think about rightly about what we do. About what we do. You see, this has to do with our faith working itself out. The master has made this investment in us. What are we to do? Certainly, we think about the implications for our church It's a question we ask corporately as a church. God has called us to community. God loves His church. Many different parts making up the whole. And some of us have put the church too much on the fringes of our lives rather than at the center of who we are as families. Some of us maybe even robbing God by our failure to put our gifts at work in the life of his church. But this is not just about church. This story doesn't just lead us to think about our life together. It leads us to think about our lives in everything we do. It's all to be done for the glory of God. And so, our workplaces, our relationships, our vocations... There was an idea in the medieval church that only ministers, that those in full-time church work were called. See, vocation comes from the Latin word for calling. And it was thought that those blacksmiths and those farmers and you engineers, that you have worldly callings. But the ministers have true callings. But the Reformation sought to change that perception while still holding the office of minister in the church in high regard, the Reformers stressed that all believers had sacred callings. Talents are not given just to be used in the life of our church, but in the lives of our homes, in the lives of our workplaces. So how do we think theologically about our work? How do we work producing a return for the glory of God? Well, we work hard that our Master might not call us slothful. We strive for excellence, seeking to reflect the One who is perfection. We work with integrity as those set apart, unwilling to cut ethical corners. We work without steamrolling people but with compassion and concern for those who are made in God's image. And we balance all these callings, our calling at work, our calling at home, and our calling at church that we might not focus too much on one to the neglect of the others. You see, this brings our Master glory. This produces a return. We've been given much, and yet much is required of us. You hold God's money, use it for His glory. You care for God's children, raise them for His glory. You yourself have been bought with a price. Now live with the, live for the one who paid that price. 
We need to think rightly about God. We need to think rightly about what we do. And lastly, we need a right view of success. And we'll end here. Simply put, in your quest to produce a return for the returning king, it's so easy for you to skew the results or to misjudge the results. You see, worldly success tells us that it's all about numbers. It's all about flash. It's all about prestige. It's all about celebrity. As your pastor, as a minister in the church, I can find myself slipping into this so easily, even as I think about my own ministry and my own life. As we think about success, as we think rightly about success, let me encourage you that ordinary faithfulness is wise investing. You probably never have your name in lights. Our church may never be the size or have the reach of many churches in our country or even in our area. But that's not what we're called to. What we're called to is have we use our resources to the best of our ability to make a return for our Master. It's a question that we need to ask corporately. It's a question that you need to ask individually. What are the resources that God has entrusted to me? And are they at work? And if they are at work, are they working just for me? Or are they working for the Master. See, ordinary faithfulness is wise investing. I couldn't help but, as I was wrapping up this sermon, but think about my grandmother, probably because I was thinking about my trip back east a couple months ago to visit her. 97 years old, my grandma Sutton, for 50 Two years, she worked as a dietitian and then a dorm mom at Southeastern Bible College. Fifty-two years. She has four kids. She has nine grandchildren. She has 19 great-grandchildren. You know what she has? She has a return for the Master. She has a legacy of faithfulness. Not one divorce. Not one denial of the faith in all of her offspring. But all bringing glory to the Master. Let that be an encouragement to us, not just about ordinary faithfulness, but especially for us, for you in this place that are young moms. Don't ever believe the lie that your work in the home, that your work with your little ones, is not producing a return for the King. 
It's exactly where you need to be. Well, it's worth noting that the one who calls his people to do this here in Matthew 25, he does this before his disciples, just days before he voluntarily goes to the cross. He goes to the cross, he takes your failures, he takes your inadequacies, and he pays for all of them. You see, the pronouncement of faithful that we all long for, that we all desire, is only because by God's grace, your returns reveal your trust, your true trust in the faithful one. The one who secured the life you couldn't. The one who has freed you to live a life of passion for the Master. May we live and may we long for those same words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word to us this morning. I thank you for the reminder that you are not a hard taskmaster, but you are a loving Father who gives and entrusts to us not that we might be burdened, but that we might be filled with joy as we serve as we were intended to serve. Oh, Father, keep this truth of stewardship, not ownership, before us. Give us boldness as we seek to be faithful to make a return for the faithful one who gave his life for us, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. May we be found in him this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.